If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Mark McCloskey is trying to leverage the nationwide attention he and his wife received in 2020 into a successful campaign for Missouri's U.S. Senate seat. But whether that actually happens, according to McCloskey, depends on if GOP voters know who he is. On this edition of Politically Speaking, McCloskey breaks down the big issues in his U.S. Senate campaign and why he feels he's the right candidate to represent Republicans in November. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today, she is St. Louis Public Radio State House and Politics reporter. Sarah Kellogg. And our special guest today, he is one of the 3,000 people running for the U.S. Senate on the Republican side. Mark McCloskey. You're not, there's not actually 3,000. I think there's like 19. But you're one of the six major candidates, which is why we're having you on the program today. And thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. And thanks for giving me the opportunity. So why are you running for the U.S. Senate? Well, you know, it's kind of a, uh, a lengthy story, but, you know, after what happened to us in the uh, in June and July of 2020, uh, we went to work for uh, President Trump. And we actually made a commitment. My wife and I made a personal commitment when we woke up on that morning of July the 4th, 2020, and we had survived the second onslaught on our house, that uh, we would put the rest of our lives on hold and do everything we could to pull back our freedoms and save this country. And we went to work on the Trump campaign, and we campaigned for the president all over the country through Texas twice and Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, Pennsylvania. We were the uh, Team Trump bus in Pennsylvania for a while, just Patty and I. And uh, we, uh, we uh, found this to be a developing calling, that it was something that, that had been placed before us that we had to do. And I never thought about running for office. And after the Trump campaign was over, Patty and I just kept doing the same things we'd been doing for the president on our own, putting on presentations on our God-given rights in the Constitution up at the state capitol. And then people started inviting us to Lincoln Reagan Day dinners. And then uh, when Roy Blunt announced that he wasn't going to run for election, people started asking me if I wanted to do it. And my initial response was, no, you know, I'm 65 years old. I don't need to be anything different. You don't look 65 years old, by the way. Clean living and thrift. Okay, but continue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, but uh, people kept asking. And so I asked a buddy of mine who uh, had been in the Reagan administration, I said, what do you think about the idea of me running for Senate? He said, why don't you just go outside, drive some nails through your feet. It'll feel better and it won't take as long. All right. But... uh, uh, we we uh, we felt that this was a, a new task placed ahead of us by God, and that we were going to do it. And so uh, we we have devoted our full time uh, since when I announced on May the 18th of last year to campaigning for the U.S. Senate. I think that this country is on the precipice of disaster, and everybody that has uh, any any love for this country or any desire to maintain the freedom of the United States 
has a personal duty to get involved and do everything they can to save it. You have described what happened to you and your wife as self-defense against a mob of people coming to harm you and your property. But many of the demonstrators strongly dispute that characterization, noting they were using your private neighborhood as a shortcut to get to Lyda Cruson's house. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, uh, Mayor Cruson doesn't live in our neighborhood. Lyda Cruson doesn't live in a private place. She lives up uh, in a public street two blocks north and about a half a mile west of my house. We are in a gated community. It's all private property. Every inch inside my gate is as private as your living room. They tore down my gate. They stormed towards my house. They were screaming death, arson, rape. I'm going to rape your wife. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to burn down your house. I'm going to take that pistol and shove it up your wife's or whatever and, uh, and rape and kill you, even kill my dog. You've got a business. Your business is gone. They're armed people, people wearing body armor and tactical gear. Uh, people on my front porch. Did they start saying that, though, when you started pointing guns at them, though? I never pointed a gun at anybody. Okay, continue. The first thing that happened was they tore down the gate and they started storming in, not just a few, but hundreds. And I stood out on the corner of my porch and I said, private property. And as soon as I said private property, it enraged them. Everybody started screaming, this is public property. And then all the nonsense, idiot chants that they always do, whose streets are streets, no justice, no peace, no racist police. And my favorite, because it uh, was a favorite of Cori Bush's, you can't stop the revolution. They're doing this on my sidewalk in front of my house, screaming death, arson, rape, and even killing my dog. And so um, my wife goes in to call 911, as did my my then 30-year-old daughter. And uh, I went inside and grabbed my AR-15 and stood back out on the porch. And uh, I, uh, I uh, as, as much as a uh, mainstream media likes to report it as peaceful social justice warriors walking by my house on the way to the mayor's house, um, that's a nice phrase, but it's complete BS. Let's move on to some serious topics okay. here. Right now, I think one of the top issues that is on the top of minds of Republicans and Democrats is what happened in Uvalde, Texas, where a gunman killed 19 children and and two teachers. And it's really stoked conversation about whether there should be tighter federal regulations around guns. If you're in the U.S. Senate and this type of issue comes up, what's going to be your posture? Well, there are plenty of federal statutes that involve gun control right now. For example, the president's son, who's a, uh, a drug addict and a, a felon, uh, bought a pistol, right? He just lied on his 4473. Um, and so, you know, for this president to have the hypocrisy to say what we need is more gun laws is ridiculous to me. But think about this. I've lived in the city of St. Louis now for 32 and a half years. Every night there's carnage in the streets. Every year there's, there's hundreds of people murdered in the city of St. Louis, including many, many children. The president doesn't make a special trip to St. Louis to say, what about the carnage in St. Louis or Chicago or Washington, D.C. or New York City? Why? These are all Democrat-controlled entities with the Democrat policies of, of lawlessness and, and soft on crime have resulted in, in carnage, which is massively greater than that which happened in Uvalde. And I mentioned this. What do they always want to do? They want to outlaw something called assault weapons, or what they call assault weapons. And yet if you look at the most recent FBI statistics, more people in this country are killed every year by fists and feet, or even hammers, than by long guns of all kinds. And so if you cut the BS and the propaganda out of it, you will not make any material difference in the actual death rate if you outlaw what they call assault weapons. Now, before we get to the next question, you mentioned Hunter Biden being a felon. Oh, I take that back. Yeah, I I think what you're trying to say is, because I just did a Google search, is there's controversy that he lied on a gun application by saying that he wasn't on any drugs when he got a gun. I don't think that he's ever been convicted of a felony. I'm just hopeful. 
Okay. Continue. <laughs> I, I, thanks I, for the clarification. I, I do have to I, point that out. I, I should have put a caveat on that the, at, at the time. But yeah, the only thing he actually, the only part of the 4473 he actually lied about was uh, being a habitual drug user. Yeah. What is the argument to be made against strengthening background checks, especially since felons do not have the right to own a firearm? Well, right now, uh, there are background checks. If you fill out a 4473, it's a felony to lie on it. I mean, if, if, if you're going to go in, let's, let's just be kind of real world here. If you're going to go kill somebody, I think there's already a law against that. If you're going to go in and, and shoot up a school, I think there's probably already a law against that. In fact, there's federal laws that make schools gun-free zones, so you're already violating that law. If you're going to go in and kill 19 people, do you think having a, 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 a stronger rule about whether or not you lie in your 4473 is going to make any difference? And most of these people, for example, recently, are people that, that uh, have some sociological problems, but we live in a country where you're considered innocent until proven guilty. The slippery slope of deciding ahead of time who might commit crimes and therefore should be denied their civil rights is the is is just a prologue to tyranny. I actually want to touch on that point because there's been a lot of Republicans after Uvalde saying we need mental health uh, funding or we need to focus on mental health. And a lot of disability rights activists have strongly pushed back against the idea that if you have some sort of mental health diagnosis, you should not be able to own a gun saying that that's not only a Second Amendment violation, that's a 14th Amendment equal protection violation, especially if there's not a nexus between the mental health disorder and violence. What, what do you think about that? Well, you know, two of my undergraduate degrees are in sociology and psychology. And back when I was in college, there was this big push towards decarceration, right, to take people out of mental hospitals and put them on the street. Um, and, and that has resulted in, amongst other things, this you know, chronic wave of homelessness. But I totally agree. I don't think that this is a country where people should be precluded from exercising their civil rights on the basis of what they, they may do. In the Soviet Union, lots and lots of people were incarcerated in mental hospitals on the concept that their political opinions made them sick. And that's the slippery slope we need to avoid. What is your take on red flag laws, which would create a court process to take away guns from people who are a threat to themselves or others? All the ones I've seen, and by the way, I'm uniformly uh, opposed to red flag laws. All the ones I've seen, uh, first of all, have a, a, a power of the state or your ex-wife or your ex-girlfriend or boyfriend to report you as a danger to yourself and others. Your guns are seized, and then you have to fight to get them back. And I can tell you that, for example, in the city of St. Louis, a neighbor of mine had his gun stolen recovered two years ago and he still hasn't been able to get his guns back as a victim of crime. Once the government takes your weapons, once the government deprives you of your rights, it is very, very difficult to retrieve them. Now, I've heard that argument before that a red flag law can be abused to take away guns from people that have done nothing wrong. Couldn't you put something in a red flag law that penalizes people for abusing it? Like, just as there's, there's, there's probably a lot of legal processes where somebody who abuses some sort of legal process could be punished if they do it unfairly, basically. Well, right now, if uh, you get anybody to write an affidavit saying that you, they think you're a danger to yourself and others, they can have you put involuntarily into a mental examination, have a 72-hour uh, hold. Um, if you do more than that, you need to have a judge actually sign off on it. But, I mean, whoever gets penalized for wrongfully saying that their ex-spouse had done something which caused them to be a danger to themselves and others. It is, it is rife with abuse, 
and and the government that wishes to seize your guns and take your rights away is not going to be so quick to uh, enforce a law against people that they think uh, may have wrongfully accused you of a dangerous act. What about raising the age limit of guns to 21? There are a lot of activities in this country that you can't do until you reach that age. Yeah, and you know, the funny thing is for me that the same Democrats that want to raise the age to, uh, to purchase a gun want to reduce the age to vote. And uh, if, you're, if you believe, like I do, that your right to vote is the most important right you have in this country and your ability to individually participate in, in the political process and affect the outcome uh, is your most important right, then how can the same people that say you're competent to vote for president at the age of 18 say you're not competent to own a weapon? Because your vote is a more potent weapon, potentially, than anything that projects light into the atmosphere. I want to move on to abortion. We are recording this on June 9th, 2022. By the time you hear this, it's very possible the Supreme Court will have decided on whether Roe v. Wade is still in effect or whether it's overturned. Um, if it is overturned and you're in the U.S. Senate and Democrats are trying to codify Roe v. Wade into law, what would be kind of your posture there? I've been totally opposed to abortion my entire life. I've been an absolute pro-life person without exception. I wear my 10-week fetus feet on my lapel. Um, uh, in the years since Roe v. Wade, 63 million Americans have been murdered through abortion. That's the population of France. You imagine if the Supreme Court issued a ruling saying that we can go to France and murder every man, woman, and child. That's the equivalent of what's happened since Roe v. Wade. And all the abolition of Roe v. Wade will do is return abortion rights or lack thereof to the states where they belong under the Tenth Amendment. The, the fiction under Roe v. Wade that there is something in the Constitution that creates a, quote, woman's right of choice, unquote, is, is complete fiction. These are rights reserved to the states and to the people under the Tenth Amendment. Now, in the event that Roe v. Wade is overturned, Missouri has a trigger law that would ban most abortions except for medical emergencies, which means if you get pregnant because you were raped or a victim of incest, you would not be able to get an abortion in Missouri. Is that something that would be acceptable to you? Absolutely. I've, I've said that publicly throughout this campaign, and I got a lot of flack in the national press over that a few months ago. Um, but we've had that exact client, client who was raped at the age of 13 by a family member who made the choice to keep that child. And she finished high school and put herself through college and, and, put her, and got a master's degree. And now her child's an adult and, and similarly has had a successful life. But that's not the point. The point is that that child made the mom's life fulfilled. It became the, 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 the light of her life, that, that, that daughter. And that's what this is all about. I mean, when we're born, when we're conceived, when from the moment of conception, God gives us a soul. And from that moment, we've got a right to live out that life to our full potential. In Missouri last year, I think there were a total of eight abortions. So far this year, I think none. And the world hasn't come to a close. Um, and I also like this. Where, where, do you, where did you get that statistic? Um, the last time I talked to Governor Parson. Um, and so that's, that's the sole source of that information. And probably from, uh, uh, um, probably from uh, Jay Ashcroft as well. But I, I, you know, we, we regularly hear these things. Um, but, you know, it, it's always interesting to me. Uh, the same people that say that a, a woman right, should have a right to control her body says you have no right to control yourself when it comes to the uh, COVID vaccine. I mean, that kind of hypocrisy. How about the fact that the same people that are always opposed to capital punishment are in favor of abortion? They say that the nine justices of the Supreme Court don't have the wisdom or, or, or discretion to decide who should live or who should die for the most heinous crimes but every teenage girl should have the right to terminate a baby's life. That hypocrisy is, is something which never gets addressed. 
We'll be right back after this quick break with U.S. Senate hopeful Mark McCloskey. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Mark McCloskey. He's a Republican U.S. Senate candidate. And the next series of questions are about Ukraine. As I said on a previous show, I am half Ukrainian, and I would rather have Sarah ask these questions. So it does not seem that I am unfair at all. So, Sarah, take it away. Sounds good. Do you support the United States continuing to support Ukraine's fight against Russia? Why or why not? Well, you know, I think that uh, the bottom line is that the, the current conflict between Ukraine and Russia could have been prevented with competent diplomacy. It uh, had been held at bay. Obviously, the Russian interest in, in taking over Ukraine uh, has been there since the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, it's been well known. It's been well documented. It has been prevented by every administration up to this one. One has to ask the question, why did this happen now? Is it an intentional act? Was it uh, through ignorance or incompetence? I don't believe that anything that happens in politics happens by accident or incompetence. I think this, this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine was allowed to uh, take place because a conflict in, in Eastern Europe is something which, which aids this current effort to undermine the American economy, undermine our sovereignty, undermine our, our respect around the world. So my answer is that, well, first of all, um, the, the portrayal of the Ukrainian government as this paragon of democracy is pure propaganda. I think of Vladimir Zelensky uh, imprisoned his political opposition, closed down uh, unfavorable media. It certainly was not what we would consider to be a democratic republic. Um, obviously, there may be worse things in the world, but to, to display it as some paragon of democracy is purely false. And then, when Zelensky addressed the joint houses of Congress a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, all the networks, including the conservative networks, played that three-minute propaganda film complete with sad music and little girls holding kittens and everything you could possibly imagine as if it were news. I have never in my life ever seen so much uniform propaganda as a push by everybody in our government and in the media for a hot war with Russia right now to provoke uh, a war by, put, by giving the Ukrainians unlimited support, by placing American advisors and aid workers and consultants in harm's way in Ukraine. And I'll go as far as to say with a hope on the part of our government that they get killed so that we can use it as a Tonkin Gulf type situation to say, now we must combat this Russian aggression in a hot war. That's going to be disastrous. Think about this. Think about uh, Missouri, where our primary economy is based on agriculture, and now Ukraine grows a third of all the wheat in the world. Russia is a source of the vast majority of our fertilizer. The price of fertilizer has tripled this year. The price We are told by our government in the United States of America, the breadbasket of the world, that we should expect food shortages. I mean, this is outrageous. We now have gas prices that have doubled. How do you plant? You plant with diesel. How do you, how do you harvest? You harvest with diesel. How do you fertilize? First, you have to buy the fertilizer, which you can't afford now. Then you have to go out and distribute it with equipment that burns diesel. All these things are crippling. All these things could have been avoided. And by the way, if you want to spend $40 billion preserving somebody's border, spend it on our border. Speaking of that $40 billion package that was signed into law a few weeks ago, would you have signed it? No. Um, Let me so, go back and say, yeah. hell no. So why? 
Well, because we have a, we have an economic crisis in this country. How many times a day do you hear somebody on the news say, well, in a country as rich as the United States or, quote, in this richest country in the world, unquote, well, we're a, we're a poverty-stricken debtor nation. The last thing we can do is spend $40 billion of our hard-earned dollars to preserve the borders of some foreign nation when we have a completely open border in this country. And that's say it has many effects having an open border. And by the way, Patty and I have been down to inspect the border, and it's much worse than anything that's being reported in the news. But you have a, uh, a group of people coming over in huge numbers who have no way of supporting themselves that have to become the wards of the state that are going to be paid for with public health money, that are going to occupy public schools that are already overwhelmed and underfunded. They're going to uh, need housing. They're going to need employment eventually in a, in a country where in every place we go, I, uh, I uh, have put on 88,000 miles on my vehicle in this campaign in the last 54 weeks. And every place we go in this state, virtually every business has a sign out saying, help wanted all positions. And now we're going to, uh, we're going to displace Americans with, uh, with illegal aliens and, and then spend $40 billion to try to provoke the Russians into a hot war. Makes no sense to me. So I want to move on to law enforcement policy and race relations. Do you believe that there is a disconnect between law enforcement and black people in this country? You know, if there is, it's, it's a result of propaganda, not reality. Here's the thing. As I, as I mentioned many times today, I've lived in the city of St. Louis for 32 years. St. Louis is a remarkably dangerous place. A couple of years ago, Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York, and Bernie Carrick, the former police commissioner in New York, spent a couple of days with us. And we were comparing notes. New York was having a very bad year, uh, crime-wise, in 2020. 8,400,000 residents in the city of New York, and at that time they'd had 300 murders. 300,000 residents in the city of St. Louis, and at the same period of time we'd had 250. About 20 times the murder rate of New York City in a bad year. And that's, that's a, that doesn't affect you and me. That affects black people in the city of St. Louis. Almost all the murder is black-on-black -black murder. That's a terrible situation. When we first moved into the city of St. Louis, we couldn't believe it, that when black people got killed every night, you wouldn't even see a one-inch-by-one-column article in the Post-Dispatch describing it. I mean, it's just ignored as if these lives did not matter. And we were always appalled. Why doesn't anybody care about this? Why isn't anybody doing anything about this? Why do the citizens of the city of St. Louis keep electing the same government that results in their, in their, in their city going broke, in their neighborhoods being destroyed, and their lives being lost? If, if, if there's a disconnect between uh, African Americans and the police, it's a result of propaganda because I believe that, that law and order, that strict enforcement of the law and strict, uh, strict uh, uh, respect for the law would be a tremendous benefit to African Americans and save so many lives it would be shocking. So I covered the protest movement that came up after Michael Brown's death, and I talked to scores of individual African American people who told me in excruciating detail about their terrible experiences with police. I've also interviewed people who have who are black, who, all, who agree with you that the violence in St. Louis is a, is a huge problem and that there needs to be done something done with it. But on that first point, are you saying that those descriptions of those experiences aren't true? Like there haven't been instances where police have crossed over the line? Well, of course there have been, but you can't use the exception to paint the picture. I represent a young man who uh, uh, was uh, the subject of excess force by the police department. I've done that uh, many times in my life, um, and uh, they are typically African Americans. Uh, but that doesn't mean that's the standard. Doesn't mean that's the 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 real 
uh, world. If you look at the number of, of blacks, unarmed blacks that are killed by police in the country in a year, although every one of them, uh, to the extent that there wasn't a legitimate reason. By the way, just being unarmed doesn't mean you're not dangerous and you're not a threat to the police officer. But let's say there are on occasions uh, cases where an African-American is wrongly killed or wrongly abused by a police officer. That's what the law is there for. And the law takes care of that. Um, and, you know, everybody says we have to get rid of qualified immunity. No, you don't. If the policeman intentionally violates somebody's rights, they will pay for it. And I've proven that time after time. But that's the exception and not the rule. If you use that as a rule, what you do is you breed lawlessness. You destroy the respect for police officers. You create what we have in the country today, which is a war on the police. And that benefits nobody. What would you do as a senator to bridge divides between black people in government? Well, you know, to the extent, once again, I keep going back to the same thing, and that is you got to separate the BS from reality. you got to stop the propaganda, and you got to, in the words of President Trump, you know, what have you got to lose by trying something different? I just don't understand how in every major, let's give St. Louis as an example. Until uh, Louis Reed resigned the other day in the city of St. Louis where it's 50-50, uh, Caucasian and African-American, we have a black mayor, a black prosecutor, a black president of the board of aldermen, a black police chief, and a, a black sheriff, right? And yet they will say that the problems in North St. Louis are due to racial discrimination. And yet, how can it be discriminatory if they have a monopoly on power uh, in, a, in a city that's, that's half black and half white? So once again, if, if you separate the reality from the propaganda and you say, this is how we can help everybody, a high tide floats all boats. We improve the economy. We improve law and order. We improve everybody's opportunity it will only get better for all people. Now, some people would say that racist policies in the past, like redlining or economic discrimination or housing discrimination, made North St. Louis into what it is today. And that was the result of like purposeful racist policies by the government. What would you say to that? Well, I'd say that I've, uh, I've lived in the St. Louis area, except when I was in college and law school for 65 years. And uh, we have had affirmative action programs since the 60s. And uh, it has deteriorated tremendously since then. That the, uh, and I'll, I'll go further and say that I think it's been intentional because I think that the, the left wants people dependent on the government. The left wants people poor, frightened, and, and, uh, um, uh, and for that matter, sick. They want, the, they want the population to be dependent on the government for their housing, for their food, for their income, for their welfare, and keep them afraid enough that they're willing to sacrifice everything for governmental control. And that's, that's what needs to be reversed. What needs to be, we need to get back to where we're all pulling the same direction. We need to get back to where everybody that comes into this country legally and everybody that's here is working towards the same goal. And that's to improve all our lives, to make everybody's life safer, healthier, and, and, and uh, um, more beneficial. That we're all, all human beings. There's only one race. There's a human race. And the efforts of the left to constantly carve us up into little tribal units so where we can fight against each other is a basic tactic of politics going back to the beginning of humankind. What should it say on the great seal of the state of Missouri? It says, united we stand, divided we fall. And cutting us all up into little fighting factions is how the left can divert us from the big topic, which is we're all one people. We should all be free. We should all have the ability to maximize our opportunity based on our own efforts and our own abilities and leave, have the government leave us back alone. Now, before we let you go, I do want to talk about the campaign right now. Um, 
most public polling shows you're in like single digits right now. On the other hand, you're a fairly well-known person based off what happened to you in 2020. I mean, if hypothetically, if you wanted to pour more of your money in, you could. How do you plan to get traction against candidates that are polling better than you right now? Well, it depends on, on what polls you see. The, the polls that are commissioned by each candidate tends to show them in the lead. The polls uh, commissioned by Eric Schmidt show him in the lead. The polls commissioned by Vicki Hartzler show her in the lead. Polls commissioned by Eric Crichton show him in the lead. We just recently uh, commissioned a poll by Signal, uh, which is a nationally reputed a polling organization not belonging to any political organization that I'm associated with. And when they ask the question, who are you going to vote for, um, I poll fairly low. When they then say, "Do you under if you if you learn that this guy named Mark McCloskey running for Senate is a pink shirt guy on the front of his porch with an AR, I'm I'm uh, in a dead heat for for the lead. And, and my poll numbers are 15.7. Vicky Hartzler's are 15.7, and Eric Schmidt, I mean Eric Greitens is at 16.4. Um, if you then ask, take away your first choice, who's your second choice? I'm way ahead of everybody else. When you add the second choice to the first choice, I'm leading the race by three points." And that's, that's the disconnect we need to overcome. Thousands of times, I'll go up to people and say, hey, my name is Mark McCloskey. I'm running for U.S. Senate Missouri. And they get this kind of dull stare on their face. And then I pull out the, the photo card that I carry around with a picture of me and Patty on the front porch. Everybody gets a big smile on their face, pat me on the back and say, boy, you got my vote. So that's the disconnect that we need to overcome. That requires money. That requires uh, being on television. Uh, obviously, given the nature of my message, billionaires don't like me very much and aren't going to dump millions of dollars into super PACs. It's a real grassroots campaign. I get three quarters taped to a postcard saying, I really love you, but this is all I can afford. Mm. Those are the kinds like of people. Like literal quarters. Literal, literal quarters. What do you do with 75 cents in a U.S. Senate campaign that costs like $50 million? You frame it. And you remember that those are the people that really count. I think that's a good place to end this conversation. Mr. McCloskey, thank you so much for your time and your indulgence. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can find me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can find Sarah on Twitter at... Sarah K. Kellogg, two L's, two G's. And how could people either find you on Twitter or if you want to plug your campaign website... This is your opportunity. All right. It's McCloskey 4 Senate, F-O-R, McCloskey4Senate.com or McCloskey4FORMissouri.com. And ladies and gentlemen, I need every penny I can get. Uh, we, we, like I say, we don't have any billionaires giving my campaign millions of dollars or we don't have super PACs that are funded by billionaires. What we have is uh, about 6 million Missourians that want change and want their government to leave them the heck alone. And I'm the person that can lead that fight. stlpr.org to find all of our stories. Until next time, so long.